0: That never changes, remains a stupid lie. It's never been quite the same. No hearing or breathing. A vacuum it may seem a waste of time It's always been
1: This is uh, Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. Uh, this week's... One of this week's guests um, is Nate Powell. Uh, latest book is Swallow Me Whole, which is getting a lot of love. You uh, were just nominated was for an L.A. Times Book Prize. That's right, Yeah. And the, the last comic to receive that was uh, something called Mouse by this guy Art Spiegelman. <laughs> People may have heard of it. Um, it's about mice in Poland, and uh, your other uh, significant chunk of work, I guess we can say, is "Sounds of Your Name" because it pretty much collects everything else. Yes. Is it everything else?
2: No, it's not everything else. I mean, besides "Please Release," uh, there are a couple of things here and there that uh, that didn't make the cut. But uh, yeah, the the other collection books have gone out of print, so I threw in. You know, those two books plus the extra To kind of sweep everything together And have it available as one unit
1: It's a big fucking book
2: Oh, it's true, it's true
1: (laughs) It was, uh, you know, it was Excuse of swearing, but damn (coughs) It's a good collection I was, uh, I, yeah I had a couple of the the walkie-talkies Sitting around It's nice just to have everything All together So I guess we'll start out with uh, Talking about Swallow Me Hole Sound good? Sure, it sounds great That's your your latest book Um, I guess first I'll start out with um, I read Swallow Me Hole And then I read Sons of Your Name And I kind of After reading Swallow Me Hole I felt like It was a work you were building up to Looking at your older work Because it seems like you have Little themes you touch on Yes That kind of work into What you're trying to establish With this longer narrative
2: Absolutely, And I mean, a lot of that is simply not knowing how to write at all <laughs> uh, up until a certain point. Like when I... Uh, the impetus for Swalmy Hole was, ba- it was basically a dream I had in late 2001. And I was kind of piecing it together, but it wasn't until around 2004, actually, I pretty much stopped drawing comics for a whole year and uh, just read tons of books and everything and tried to... You know, I was basically... I was tired of basically being impatient due to my youth and trying to cram a 200-page story into 30 pages, like with most of the walkie-talkie stories. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had realized that this is a problem now, Um, but I realized that unless I really quit everything and learned how to assemble a real narrative, that I still wasn't going to get anywhere with what I was trying to say. So I basically... Just read, studied, tried to piece together an actual story out of these little nuggets, and uh, about a year later, then I finally got started on the book again. I'm very glad I made that decision.
1: well, let's talk about some of the themes that you you explore through your collected works um one that really sticks out to me is um i guess I don't want to say schizophrenia, but mental illness in teens right what's the the attraction there? Really? Well,
2: um, yeah, I mean, that's it's definitely like a It's a major narrative theme And I'd say, as far as To talk first about Just, you know, my life and everything um, For the last ten years I've worked full-time doing uh, Support and care work for Adults with developmental disabilities And with a lot of folks with disabilities That also goes hand-in-hand with Mental or behavioral disorders mm-hmm. And, uh my older brother has high functioning autism. It's just something I've grown up around for a long time. Um and it, it took me until I was about twenty when I realized that this is not like a common perspective that people grew up with. And um so I don't know, I'd say with a lot of stories I do that winds up creeping in. But as the narrative was assembling, one of the there were a couple of things going on in my life. One was a very good friend of mine who Was having a really rough time Kind of coming mentally unglued During that time frame Um, And also uh, All three of my Grandparents died Within the space of about three months But one of them, was my grandmother Who actually got me Focused on and interested in Doing visual art Your phone's Uh, uh, cutting up a little bit Oh it is, I'm sorry, okay Um, But uh yeah, so my, my grandmother was dying of cancer in early 2004, late 2003. And uh, she definitely, she had, you know, she lived with bipolar disorder, but it was a very manageable thing. But in her last months, she started getting some dementia going in there and would have a lot of very disturbing perceptions. And actually, most of the the grandmother in Swami Hole is... Based fairly closely on my grandmother And most of the things That the grandmother says in the book Are things that my grandmother Directly said to either myself Or my dad Mm -hmm. Um, But all in all I mean, so in a narrative sense That's where it fits in Thematically or metaphorically I think that uh, The broader aim of the book Is simply um, if If it's a book about Dignity, choice, adolescence, uh, change, loss uh, I thought that it really made the story more interesting Without being exploitative That a lot of the experiences that Ruth, for example, is going through um, You know, you can take her a couple of scenes And you can kind of read those scenes As being a product of her having some sort of a delusional experience uh, or schizophrenic experience, and then a lot of those, if you reread them and just try to imagine her being a teenager and feeling deeply, you know, and acting on her feelings. Um, hopefully, that can present some kind of a dialogue or a challenge to you know someone reading, and experiencing the book.
1: One of the really interesting things I found. With your take on the characters, is that it's not, um, especially talking about the mental health part, it's not preachy and it's not trying to establish your points of view on what the, these people are going through. It's more just kind of following their experiences.
2: Yeah, I think that. I mean, that would be pretty, be pretty lame, uh, honestly, if it were. If it were too preachy, and especially because I I want to emphasize that Me Hole is not a book about mental illness and mental disorders. I, it's a you know it's a very important part of the book. It's part of the characters' lives, but it's as much about love, death, family, change, loss, dignity. It's as much about these things as it is about mental disorders. So mm-hmm. uh, basically, I was trying to both in my personal experience and Trying to be a responsible storyteller I was trying to You know Convey these experiences Realistically, subjectively But not in a way That's like, whoa This is a yep. book about, you know This is a book about this crazy stuff It's happens. madness Because yeah. <laughs> these things Do happen yep. and uh, They're a regular part of regular people's lives So hopefully I was, I was able To communicate that a little effectively
1: how did did you have the story planned out pretty much in advance or how did it change as you're working with those characters
2: well, let's see um, <clears throat> in general I had the skeleton of the plot worked out um, as I as I went into seriously drawing the book and um, Certain characters, especially supporting characters, would develop themselves in ways that I would get really surprised by, and um, you know there were a couple of characters I really wanted to follow more than I wound up following.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And uh, I didn't have I didn't have the time, and I knew it would be misleading, or you know it would take me off the trail that this particular book was going in. But uh, I'd say. About two-thirds of the way through the book That's when these changes started to happen And uh, Every once in a while I'd be drawing and I would realize Something about the character or the character Would be doing something that would sort of take me by surprise And then I guess for the first time in my life I was like Ah, this is it, this is the thing that you Hope to This is the thing you hope to run across as a creator Where you see Your creation, I guess, quote Take a life of its own, you know Yeah um, I'm like, ah, it's, you know, these characters are becoming, you know, they're, they're having a breath of life in them that they did not have previously, and, uh, you know, this is a, a really refreshing thing, and it's something that I think I've longed for as a comic book artist. So, um, plot-wise, it stayed pretty consistent. Chris Daros was very diligent about story editing with me, and uh working for clarity and everything while letting certain parts of the of the book branch out. But as far as the personalities and lives of the characters, there would definitely be changes along the way that would take me by surprise.
1: Tell me about the it's a black and white book. So tell me about the use of uh black space within the book. Um yeah. because like there'll be parts it'll kind of be interspersed, like some of it's nighttime, but sometimes it's kind of trying to go for I guess an emoting
2: effect. Yeah. In general, um, I guess yeah. In the in the simplest way, the last five years or so, I really like organizing my comics as far as as far as paneling works and uh, page flow and scene scene flow. um, There are simple things I like to do. If a story is during the nighttime, I do like to make the gutters and margins black. if something takes place out of the present continuity oftentimes i will take away the panel borders and just have them have each panel vignetted uh, and then once you cut back into the present then the panel borders go back up but as far as the black space goes i mean in general it's a lot of it had to do with trying to carefully carefully control the sense of time passing and the sense of time flow but in a way that wouldn't stretch the book out too much, but I think that when you have black, when you have a lot of black as opposed to a lot of white surrounding some panels, um, it actually does not. It to me, it doesn't seem as constrictive. It kind of feels like the panel or the the scene is swimming in this ocean, you know, just in this in this void, and. I feel like you can get a lot more breathing time out of a page or a scene sometimes when you're surrounded by black instead of white. And I think vignettes work in a different way. Uh, So a lot of it is is control of perceived time, and some of it is just this sort of, like, formal element that I have to use as far as dividing night and day and scene to scene.
1: One thing I find interesting, uh, talking about kind of the abstract components, is your way of kind of playing with lettering Tell me a little bit about that Because you'll have You know Very abstract writing Or I guess You know Like a slanted cursive writing um, Kind of working with that That emotion
2: stuff Well I'd say uh, In general When I'm reading I'm trying to think of what a good I'd say the two best examples Growing up When I would read comics And I didn't even really notice this Until the last decade or so are reading Seree Bark* and also certain nineteen eighties, like early mid nineteen eighties Chris Claremont X Men comics, uh, I would notice these this affectation in the lettering. And most of the time it would it would be something getting drippy or um drippy or heavy if someone was being snotty or uh Actually making the lettering smaller But having the panel having, having the word balloon the same size If someone was underspeaking um, And It was something I didn't really use Until the last few years and, and then all of a sudden it hit me that Not only was I starting to loosen up And I just wanted more fun drawing comics
0: mm-hmm.
2: But uh, As far as the reader Being able to have A more powerful subjective experience Inside the story If there are people Talking around that you can't hear what they're saying Whether it's important or not You shouldn't be able to read what they're saying Unless you really try And so there's a lot of script Throughout the book Um, A lot of it's just noodly mumbling And a lot of it is real script But it's very hard to read I mean even when I drew it 17 inches tall It was hard for me to read (laughs) as I was lettering and so I mean, it's just like if you're inside the crowd, in the actual scene, and you want to eavesdrop on someone, you have to tune your attention to it. And likewise, if you want to hear what someone's saying a few tables over, while you're reading the comic, you have to do the same thing. Um, and also, yeah, like if someone, you know, I, I just tried to, I tried not to divorce uh, the lettering from the fact that it is a strong component of the visual of the visual art. Involved that it is visual art So um, if someone's Interrupted a person might walk through Or over a word balloon or if they're being Ignored it might get crossed out by Someone else um, Kind of
1: interplaying with it
2: Yes and I, I just Think uh, Yeah it just makes it a lot more fun to read a comic uh, You feel like the characters are Almost responding to you as a Reader in a certain way I just, I just think it's a lot of fun Do you have any
1: uh, fascination with bugs?
2: Um, I'm not really. I'm not really afraid of any bugs except cockroaches. Um, Which are just gross. Yeah, they're just gross. Uh, But, uh, I mean, I do have, you know, like, uh, I guess I never really collected too many bugs or anything. When I moved here to Bloomington in 2004, uh, it's when a very, very strong wave of 17-year locusts came through, or 17-year cicada came through. And I was able to actually, and I mean, there were, I'd say, hundreds of billions of them here for about two weeks. And I did manage to save some of their little husks, which I still have. They're very, very delicate. But I've got a couple of them still. And a lot of that was because the cicada were already a part of my book, and I was like, "Oh well, this is convenient. And we have this cicada attack as as I'm putting this book together. I might as well keep a couple of these, but no, I mean, growing up, you know I was fascinated by dinosaurs and ocean life, and I'm still fascinated by ocean life and um but yeah, bugs had honestly never been that big of a fascination for me.
1: why live in Bloomington?
2: Well, um, before I moved here, I had spent most of the last six years living in New England or in New York City. <clears throat> and
1: You were in I Providence for quite a while, right?
2: Yes. I was there. That's where I lived right before I moved here. And I had a lot of good friends there, and basically it was just not my town. A lot of good people there, but uh, I'm a pretty, pretty anxious person, and I'm a a very hard worker but definitely keeps my, my stress level up <laughs> to a very, very high degree. And really just there the stress level is almost just tangible in the air. And uh it was kind of I was just kind of a, a very negative experience while I was there and I did a lot of basically there's a lot of damage I did to myself like my sense of self while I was there. It was just, when it was time to go, it was time to go. And uh, I wanted to be back, I wanted to be closer to Arkansas, my home state, because my brother was about to live into, move into an independent living situation. My grandparents were dying, but I did not want to live there again. So my very best friend in the world lived here, and I knew a bunch of friends from touring together in bands, and I liked the town already. I was like, it's cheap, it's nice, it's cool, some of my favorite people are there. I don't have any better ideas, why not? And basically since then, I've come to the... I've taken the attitude that I should no longer move away from things. I should only move towards them. And sometimes I get bored of being here or frustrated. But, uh, you know, that's no reason to move away necessarily. And I still really like this place and have no plans to leave.
1: Tell me, you're talking about 17-inch pages... With yes. the Swallow Me Home. Tell me about the, the, the page process.
2: Okay, uh, well, basically, yeah, as I'm working up the pages, um, I'll usually start by taking whatever writing I have for that section of the book and I will block out about 10 pages at a time as thumbnails. And the thumbnails are usually very small, very rough, and they're always drawn in pen, they're usually about two inches high. And they're usually indecipherable, except to me. Uh, they look very very <laughs> abstract.
1: In code. Just,
2: just curves, yeah. Um, and then I, I prefer working in 10-page blocks whenever I can, because not only do you, when you're doing easy stuff, like you're cutting the paper or you're ruling out the lines or whatever, you get a, a very quick, easy Sense of accomplishment we are like, oh, today I laid out ten pages And then You're also keeping your drawing consistent Within this short passage Of the book And you're sort of working everything up at once So from the thumbnails Then I do the, the blocking out And the very, very loose pencils For the ten pages Then when I'm done with that um, I revise the script And I I finish all the lettering Then I tighten up the pencils, and I used to not do tight pencils until this book. Basically, I turned in um, about 40 or 50 pages of rough pencils to Chris and Brett at Top Shelf to see if they'd be interested in the book. And uh, Chris is like, "Well, first off, I think you know I think it's going to be a good book, but what I want you to do is stop. Just stop doing whatever you're doing because I'd inked about 15 of those pages." Like <laughs> none, none of this rough pencil business, then inking it and having to change it later. I want you to do finished pencils on the entire book, and then we'll go back and work through it and edit it and figure out what needs to be done. You're going to save a lot of work in the end. And I never worked like that. I really like doing most of my thinking in ink. Mm-hmm. And so and I was like, <laughs> but then once I got started and got over the hump, I was like, man, this is great. So from, I, I try now to, to do finished pencils on everything. It does save time, but it really is more satisfying, uh, and it, it helps prevent me from being lazy on the back end as I'm inking, too. Um, so, yeah, in general, for Swallow Me Hole, I would spend about maybe two and a half hours penciling each page uh, and about two hours, eh, maybe three hours, inking each page. And then once I'd finished that 10-page block, I'd move on to another 10-page section.
1: That's pretty good uh, speed, though. You said two and a half hours penciling about the same inking?
2: Oh, yeah. But, I that's, mean, that's, that's it is a pretty, pretty good. good speed. But that's I'm also just a supreme procrastinator. So, <laughs> I mean, that could take a whole 10-hour day of work because, like, oh,
1: look at something
2: on the Internet. Or I, I suddenly have to <laughs> clean my room or rearrange something or... Uh, I mean, and I'm actually more productive. I work more regularly, and I get more done if I have a good regular distraction like that. If I try to, if I just tried to like draw a page in five hours, I couldn't do it. But I could definitely finish it in five hours out of an eight or nine hour day. So it's a, it's a sort of I just had to learn the correct way to trick myself.
1: Still, it's a yeah. good page process or good speed. <laughs> I know a lot of people that are a lot slower than that so don't worry
2: <laughs> yeah my my all time inspiration is a cartoonist Arthur Adams I know is one of the slowest comic book artists of all time so I always think of him and I'm like you're not doing so bad if you can still <laughs> pump out a couple of pages a week you're doing okay
0: whatever
1: happened to him who knows I just you know I don't like it seems like after a certain point in the 80s it's just not as interesting I don't know. I just don't really care for the, uh, Monkey Man or O'Brien stuff,
3: I guess. Yeah, I,
2: there's definitely, like, I, I was able to read this, uh, this sort of interview book about him, and I, it helps me understand a little more about what happened in the 90s. Um, I'm definitely a, a 1984 to 1988 Arthur Adams fan to the core.
1: You're like, bring on the long shot.
2: Oh, absolutely. And still my favorite mainstream comic of all time is X-Men Annual 10, uh which he which he did with has mojo and long shot and all that stuff in it but uh what yeah when I was able to look through it I was this interview book I finally understood that at a certain point he booted his page size down as small as 11 inch originals um and so I, what yeah as a as a 13 year old I was just perplexed by this sudden you know like these lines became thick and clunky, and i didn 't understand it, but at the time, I also didn 't understand that comic book artists usually drew larger than print size mm-hmm. uh, but now to to see these see some of this work and'm like oh that 's what was happening, and see him sort of play with page size uh, it made a lot more sense, and I took it less personally, so <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: he's
1: just trying to save a little time.
0: Standing by my window Breathing some of
3: So said we didn't know, took us by the hands and
1: A little like your work is, you know, very steeped in the uh in the current alternative stuff, but I do feel like reading your work, that little touch of like someone like Bill Sinkovich is just sitting under there oh. somewhere. Well, thank you.
2: Yeah, the the Bill Sinkovich, New Mutants Run and the Electro Assassin Run are some of my favorite and two more of my favorite, you know, mainstream comics runs ever.
1: If only he could... Uh, if only uh, Stray Toasters made sense. <laughs> um, so tell me about um, what got you into comic stuff. We're talking a little bit about the mainstream stuff. What was uh, the okay. bug that made you want to become a cartoonist?
2: Well, okay, I'd say... From about age three, I was already into comics. Um, I, would, I would read Spider-Man. I was very into the Hulk and Wonder Woman... And uh, From there I sort of jumped into G.I. Joe and Transformers and stuff But And I I was aware of some of this other stuff But really I guess I was 11 years old And I was on my way to church camp With my best friend Who actually lives a couple doors down from me now And we're still in bands together And everything But on the way there He had been drawing comics for a couple of years already And uh, he's like Hey we should draw comics together, and then all and I—I've been drawing, you know, since I was three or four. But I had never really—I loved comics, but I had never put two and two together. And I was like, "Oh, of course!" So that was 1990, and uh, we just—we just started and started cranking out hundreds of pages throughout <laughs> junior high school. And um, at that time, at that exact, actually on that day, I started reading X Men, Daredevil. And uh so yeah, really the the Claremont era X Men uh are a huge a huge shaping force in my life. Uh I've even I think I've actually said it in a comic before that uh the X Men gave me my social conscience as a twelve year old. <laughs> um it was the X Men and the metal band Anthrax. Without those two Anthrax. Who yeah, who knows what kind of <laughs> douchebag, I'd be. Um, (laughs) But, uh... So, let's see, yeah. You're you're lucky
1: you came out uh, well with those influences. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah, true. Yeah, a lot worse could have happened with those influences. For sure. Um, But, yeah, basically, yeah, I was reading a lot of mainstream comics. I was definitely a Marvel kid. And I didn't really understand what any of the appeal was in the DC Universe until... Maybe five or six years ago, and I finally understood the differences in writing method and the focus on character versus plot between Marvel and DC. Started going back and understanding that it's truly a different breed of mainstream comic, and I started appreciating it a lot more. Um, but my my thirteen year old brain was just not into that. I needed something that was much more. You wanted more ninjas. I be, yeah, I wanted something that was much more metal, actually And Marvel <laughs> seemed more metal at the time Marvel but, was uh,
1: more metal I, I like that I believe that. so <laughs>
2: um, And basically, so I was reading all these comics and everything But around 1991, I started getting really into punk the music and the culture and everything And there's a lot of, you know, there's a very strong do-it-yourself ethic that goes along with that And in the 1990s, Little Rock, Arkansas had one of the best punk scenes in all of the United States and so I was going to a lot of shows and everything, and um, a lot of zines and stuff were coming out of my town and across the country. So I started to, at the same time I started publishing comics, which was 1992, I, I started making zines shortly thereafter. But I did not see that these things were connected in, in approach, in epic, in... The things that I was trying to say So I was making these super, these dystopic superhero comics And I was also making these Personal Sort of autobiographical style Punk zines too And I'd say maybe when I was 16 or so all of, And I was like wait uh, Actually I can think of what it is I wasn't even 16 I was out of high school And uh, this guy Al Burian, now a good friend of mine But back then, just this person who did a great zine called Burn Collector, and was in some bands I liked, he put out a comic called The Long Walk Nowhere. And reading this comic, it hit me for the first time that I could draw comics about the life that I know to say the things I wanted to say. You know, uh, I didn't have to figure out a hero adventure to put them, you know, to filter them through, and I didn't have to Keep autobiographical stuff Stuck in prose with photo cutouts And bad poetry So there's this synthesis <laughs> With with, uh, with Alberian comics That just really blew the doors open And right after that I read I Never Liked You by the great Chester Brown mm-hmm. And uh, I read it all in one sitting uh, Oh, it should be about, read Yeah, and I was just Screwed for days After reading that And I was like, this is why Comics exist and so those two comics really helped synthesize you know my narrative what I thought was important about telling stories the power of comics the personal appeal uh, and from then on there was sort of no looking back God
1: bless Chester Brown Oh I'll say My favorite uh, thing I interviewed Sammy Harkham and he uh, was very blunt and said Yeah people say I draw like Chester Brown sometimes That's a compliment to me (laughs) (laughs) Uh, love them, love them, and so you went to uh, to school at the SVA. Yes, am I right? And that kind of delved you further into the madness of comics.
2: Absolutely, yeah. I uh, I went to my first year of college at just a uh, some just some school, it was George Washington University in Washington D.C. And uh, that's its own story. Basically, it's a fluke that I just wound up going to this school for a year. And before I even went there, I was like, what am I doing? You know, like, I really need to pay attention to what's important to me. I really want to tell stories through comics. I think I'm pretty good at it. I really want to go to this school. So by the time I got to SCA, um, and I'm a person who's not, I'm extremely anti-nationalist. Uh, I don't like Pride in any institution, really, but I was strangely gung ho about being an SBA student (laughs) just because I almost screwed everything up and almost just went to this normal school and probably got a job as a whatever I would be, like a C-rate psychologist or something. (laughs) But uh, once I was there, I was like, all right, I'm not wasting any time. I'm going to these classes where they just teach about storytelling and life drawing, and uh, yeah. SCA was a great a great experience, had some great teachers, met some great people. I was out of there in three years. Um, at the same time, it was uh, my world was very... There was a dichotomy in my world, or it was just this binary, because there was my school life where I was drawing comics, and then every possible break for the summer, the winter, the spring... My band would wind up going on tour, and so I basically just forget about everything, go back to Arkansas, start practicing, tour all summer, then drop that, go back to New York. Um, so it was a it was a bizarre couple of years for sure.
1: Who are some of your uh, kind of seminal instructors that really uh, kind of
2: helped? Well, let's see. I'd say uh, my favorite teacher that I've ever had was the. Ingenious Ben catcher, mm-hmm. uh, and I had him my last year of school, and I there were only about eight students in that class, and half of them really didn't know who they were dealing with. Like they, <laughs> they just thought, they just thought, they just thought bin catcher was some absent-minded fool. Um, they're like, what the hell is he talking about? And then the other four students uh, all you know, had raw had- Oh, we were ready. Yeah, you know we, because every day like he would come to class, and he would have some bizarre archival photocopy from an eighteen, you know, a series of eighteen nineties newspapers or something. Or he would make us go out and steal things like off of people's doors and cars that were handwritten by a stranger. Uh, So we would analyze it and eventually like write a one-page comic based on this idea or uh, and that actually came from the, the concept of the suicide note like we had a whole class about the suicide note where um, the whole thing he was trying to get across was even people who don't consider themselves writers have to write things sometimes whether it's a grocery list or a note to a loved one but the suicide note is the last thing that someone gets to communicate whatever it is that's important to them even if they don't write And so we had to analyze these old suicide notes and sort of twist them, reinterpret them, and draw comics on them. It was just stuff that was blowing my mind. Um, So, yeah, Ben Catcher was great. There's a guy, Keith Mayerson, um, who was great. Klaus Jansen was my teacher for, I guess, a year and a half. I had the last class with Joe Orlando before Uh he passed away. Um, And yeah, he was a great guy, very helpful, but also it's funny because he just... You know, he's just this uh, this awesome silver age guy who he didn't. I don't know. I don't think he had any concept of computers. And so there was a there was like kind of one of the bottom tier students in class was having kind of a rough time, just not a very good drafts person. And uh, I remember Joe Orlando just sort of being like, "Maybe this just isn't for you, you know? Maybe have you ever thought about like like computers?" Like, you could do, like, computer art. <laughs> I and mean, then we were just kind of cringing. We're like, he doesn't even know what computer art is. But at the same time, oh, God, he has such a point. Um, so, yeah, had Joe Orlando. Oh, had Carmine, <laughs> had Carmine Infantino, which I had him for two years, and that was awesome. Uh, There's that a, is,
1: That's DC in a nutshell right there.
2: Oh, I'll say, yeah, he was DC. And, uh... Yeah, he was also great because he was very, very energetic, uh, would definitely shut the class up like you were in seventh grade. He'd give you every once in a while, like a, hey! <laughs> and everybody would be, would be afraid that he was going to, like, throw someone through a window. But, uh, yeah, I have a bunch of stories that I had to draw for that class that were just so funny I couldn't get rid of them. We'd be like, all right, we've got a three-page story. It's Tarzan. It's like, you know, there's, like, some... Uh, some natives that kidnap Jane. He's just making, he pulling it out of his ass. As he's, as he's <laughs> saying, like, the Tarzan, like, swings in, and then these giant gorillas come with clubs, and they're fighting Tarzan. He throws them in a giant pot of boiling water and then rescues Jane. Draw it. <laughs> like, what the hell? But, uh, but he was a great hands-on teacher when you would get, when you'd finish your three-page Tarzan story. He'd be like, all right, no, 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 here's what you got to do. And he would just sit down with a Sharpie or a, his Bic pen and just draw all over your page uh, and work mostly with composition and lighting and blocking. But when you were done, you're like, Carmine Infantino just drew on my comic page. <laughs> I'm keeping <So>, this. <laughs> yeah, very, very special class assignments.
1: Well, it sounds like that was such a unique... Awesome experience. Like everyone I've talked to that's gone there, has just like gotten so much out of it.
2: Oh, it's definitely. Amazing. And I think bec- you know because it was the first, the first cartoonist school, at least in the U.S., maybe in all North America. It still has that that little special spice yeah. for, the comic, for the comic book students. You know that you know you're in the cartooning department, and it is a special place. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's yeah. Um, Tell me about the punk rock side of your life.
2: Okay. Well, just... Uh,
1: I mean, we are re- college radio.
2: Oh, it's true. So we are
1: college <laughs> this is uh, apropos to uh, most of the other stuff that happens at the station.
2: Well, let's see. Um, yeah, I've been into... I guess I've been into punk since 90 or 91. And uh, I was in a band for many, many years called Sufjanin Squad... That I guess we started playing Or we started As a band In 92 And about Two years ago We sort of Finally became defunct But Uh Toured A lot of times Throughout the US And Canada And Europe And Um We only played Vancouver once We played in a basement Um I can't remember what neighborhood It was in But that was in 2001 Commercial drive probably Probably Um And uh Yeah Growing up Like uh I was very informed by a lot of the Washington D.C. 1980s hardcore. Yes, yeah, definitely like the the early to late 80s discord scene uh, found its way, you know, and to Little Rock. And I know Fugazi and a lot of the Ignition and a lot of the early or the the post Revolution Summer hardcore bands played in Little Rock in the late 80s and sort of, you know affected our scene a lot, but also a lot of the West Coast punk from the Bay Area and from San Diego found its way. And yeah, as I was growing up, finally getting to an age where I was skateboarding a lot and, you know, eventually driving, as my mobility was increasing, I was getting exposure to not only this music, but these zines and this artwork that were coming from all different kinds, you know, all over the map. And, uh, it was, it was just a really magical feeling. Um, I guess the first real thing was through the uh, through the local radio station, just public access radio in Little Rock. There was a punk show that would come on Friday nights called Adios America. And uh, as a 13 year old, I couldn't even grasp the concept that I'd be like, wait, this is punk music from all over the world, and I didn't even I couldn't even grasp that you could have a hardcore band from the netherlands that could somehow get played on a public access radio program in little rock arkansas so uh by the time i was touring and traveling more um whether it was with a band or even with comics uh that has ever since then affected the way i navigate the world and uh when i started doing a lot of comic shows and going to expos and stuff, doing signings, um, it was very refreshing because i have to admit i had this i sort of had this little chip on my shoulder about this this community that i came from that i was very proud of uh... uh you know other other communities, other scenes, are they're, they're not going to be like punk because people really support each other in punk and they're interested in each other and uh, there, there's probably just no sense of community at all. But when I started going to these comic conventions, it blew my mind that it was just as tightly knit and supportive, and you had these people basically spending their whole paycheck to get table space or to buy and trade with everyone else's books, people partying with, uh, each, with each other all night and sleeping on each other's floors. It was, just, you know, in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. And there wasn't a political framework that was tying everything together. Um, or even like an existential framework, I'd say. But um, but yeah, taking out the politics and everything, the the structure of the community was astonishingly similar, and very very refreshing to see that you know that potentially any community, any group of people that's brought together for something they care about, um, you know, can make something worthwhile and magical.
1: Great linkages Um, I'm nearing the end of my Amount of time What's your next project that you're working on
2: Well uh, I guess I'm working on three things One is I'm doing My own book For Top Shelf Called Any Empire and that's about that's about 160 pages or so. I'm I'm done penciling it. I'm about to we're about to start editing it and working on it before the inks. And it's mostly about living in a culture of distrust um, and how to get out of that framework of like distrust, fear, racism. Uh, but how and, and a lot of it is about state control and how that kind of paranoia and fear serves the interests of very frightening. Uh, very frightening organizations and people who seek to survive only. So I'm doing that. I'm also drawing a graphic novel that's written by these two guys from Seattle, Mark Long and Jim D. Manacos, and it's called The Silence of Our Friends, and that doesn't have a publisher yet. I'm just penciling it.
1: Jim's the oh, guy then. that puts on the Emerald City comic convention.
2: Yes, and I will be there next month, actually.
1: I should be there as well.
2: Awesome. And the only the, the other major thing I'm working on is I'm doing a series of stories written by Rachel Borman. That's with two Ns at the end. Um and uh, I've done the first one called Cakewalk and I've been publishing it just as a as a mini comic it's up on the top shelf website now. But we're working on the second story right now called The Uncomfortable Gaze of Carlos Santin. So that'll be out in a couple months as well. Yeah. <laughs> Awkward. Oh, yeah. and yeah, she's just a really awesome writer, and uh, <gasps> so I'm very excited for this, this series to come out.
1: And did you mention your latest band's name?
2: Oh yeah, this I'm in a new band called Still Hidden, Still hidden. which is kind of like a early Iron Maiden meets off the wall era Michael Jackson meets Moss Icon, uh, and yeah, it's pretty much a baroque metal punk hybrid with violin so what was the name again i gotta tell them oh it's called still hidden still like, hidden. Oh, uh you don't you don't know what's in that swamp it's still hidden
1: <laughs> oh jeez. i think the the girl that does the show before me would be all over it it's, uh, awesome it's a it's a it's a punk show um well, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, chat with me today, Nate.
2: Absolutely, thank you. As I
1: said, I really enjoyed Swally M- Mihole as well as uh, Sounds of Your Name. Um, kind of great companion pieces to see uh, how an artist develops from ideas into finished products. So It's, uh, it's good. Well, I like thank process. You. So. Me too. Thank Absolutely. you so much for joining me today.
2: No problem. Thank you.